SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hello. What a time in the history of our universe where you can take a picture of a galaxy 13 billion miles away and also you can have... Any guest host of your dreams on SciShow Tangents, who is it? It's not actually true, but I want to know who your who would be your your absolute thrill of the moment to be on the podcast. Has to be a living person. No Abraham Lincoln. No ghosts on the pod. They're too scary. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We can get them, but I give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, I'm so scared of everyone I respect. That is <laughs> oh, no. worse than ghosts. Uh, I will say that I have a fantastic idea for if we can ever get John on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just a great idea. Oh, I can see what I can do about that. Do you want me to go first? Uh, yeah. Because you guys are so afraid. I think it's not impossible 
to get Alf. Who is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alf. Yeah, uh, he's got he's got literal like a different like a totally different view on science being from another planet. He's from Melmac. He's from Melmac, and uh, I think it has a, just a a wildly different sort of <laughs> outlook on the world. But I feel like he'd be a, a quite a classic guest host for SciShow Tangents, especially the video version. <laughs> yeah, that would be essential. Uh, do you know Alf's real name? Um, I did at one point, I think that I did a trivia about Alf once and I, I knew it for that reason, but it's the best fictional name of all time. I think Gordon Shumway. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> all right. So I didn't mind Alf. Who's yours? Oh shit. That's such a good answer. So the closest I can come up with is just Taika Waititi, because I would like to have said uh, that I would have a yes. conversation with him. And uh, I think he he'd could be carry, he'd be so good at it. He would carry the entire 30 minutes with mm-hmm. comedy, we would not get a single joke in. And if one of us made him laugh, that would be a story we tell for the rest of oh, our lives. Of that's, like, a, that's the best. That's better than Alf. I, I'm going <laughs> to just like uh, slide into his DMs right now. I'm sure they're I, open to me. No, mm-hmm. I'd throw up if a famous person was on our show. <laughs> don't do this to me. <laughs> you don't want us to succeed, Sam. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he seems like a down-to-earth famous person, too. He naps all the you time. You know, he doesn't have that many more followers on Twitter than me. <laughs> Oh yeah, you're famous. I forgot about that. <laughs> He's uh, Alf follows him. Really? Oh, yeah. That's Maybe. it. We get him on, and then we get Alf on. It's a one-two <laughs> kind of deal. All right. Every week here on Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with some science facts while also trying to stay on topic and failing. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. At the end of the episode, one of these people is going to be crowned the winner. And yes, I did call you Beeple. We've <laughs> come to the end of Kids Month, a month and some change of celebrating the childlike wonder of science. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope that you will also enjoy SciShow Kids, our YouTube channel for early elementary learners. It's hosted by Jesse Knutson Castaneda, who you may know from her channel Animal Wonders and Anthony Brown and Squeaks the Robot Rat. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sam. On TV, spaceships look like fun in games, like when flown by George Jetson or his wife, Jane. They can zip all (laughs) around the Milky Way in ships with fake gravity and advanced sick bays. But in real life, when you're on a spaceship, you put your ass on a vacuum just to take a shit. And artificial gravity isn't real. You float around when you sleep and eat goo every meal. You and four people all trapped in a can, and you can't take a shower till you get back to land. And mm. though there's universal splendor wherever you look, there probably aren't even video games. I bet you have to read books. So astronauts are cool, but spaceships are no fun. Get back to me when they have warp drives and sweet laser guns. That's great. Our topic for the day is spaceships. I don't want my spaceship to have laser guns because that means that somebody else's spaceship has laser guns. You're shooting asteroids with it. Come on. It's just, for, for it's just to clear up the asteroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, spaceships have the biggest gap between <laughs> what it's actually like in real life and what it should be like based on what the name is. Yes. It's like a submarine, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a submarine's pretty bad, too. But yeah, you're not yeah. floating around in the submarine. Hopefully. If you are, you're in big trouble. But uh... <laughs> That's, yeah, Oh, my God. Uh, so, Sari, what is a spaceship? Well, if you try to Google spaceship or you look in any academic paper, the mm-hmm. the stuffy scientists, no one writes about spaceships. It's mm-hmm. solidly in the world of fiction. Um, okay, so there are no spaceships is what I'm hearing. So they don't exist at the end. 
<laughs> no. All uh, these terrible spaceships we have now, those don't count. Those don't count because no one ever calls them a spaceship. Um, they call them spacecraft instead. Oh. And I, I like started speculating as to why, but uh, it seems like. Uh, this is the rabbit hole that I fell down instead of n- the normal etymology because spaceship is pretty standard. Like it's space as an outer space and ship <laughs> as in a boat. And then you squish them together and then you got a spaceship. But the earliest known use of the word was from 1879, uh, a passage in the book, I think, Progress and Poverty by Henry George, who was talking about spaceship Earth. So the Earth as a spaceship which Disney World has really capitalized on, but the okay. idea that yep, we yep, are yep. we are hurtling through space and have all yes. our necessities, if, and we are the crew. If this is a spaceship, then this is a great spaceship. Yes. What an like, amazing spaceship. It doesn't even need a lid. It's, yeah. it's open air. It's like a space train, more like, though. It don't get to go anywhere. It just sort of stays rails. in the same place. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a space we got a space train there. Space train earth. We got to change the name. <laughs> <laughs> and then a uh, a a writer named JJ Astor uh, wrote a novel called A Journey in Other Worlds published in 1894 and that's when the word spaceship is generally credited to uh in the sense of a a spacecraft that is piloted in outer space um, as opposed to like something that was fired out of a cannon or autonomous in some mm. way because science fiction writers have dreamed up all kinds of scenarios. So that's mm. where the word came from. And as far as I can tell, this is where it gets into Sari speculation. There's a lot of nautical stuff going on. There've been, there's been a lot of nautical stuff for a while in like a big ship, a big tankard. You travel mm. across the ocean and so it made sense to science fiction writers and in communicating these speculative fictions to draw comparisons between space and the sea because they're both vast, they're both scary. You go off into the unknown and you can kind of visualize it with similar mechanisms. Like you have little ports and then you go to and from various mm-hmm, destinations mm-hmm. and in between there's this vastness that you have to navigate. Mm-hmm. And planes really weren't a thing until the 1900s. So when we started dreaming of space travel, we didn't have space plane. Couldn't come up with that word. We had we had the word <laughs> ship around, so it was okay. easy. Just just. So you're telling me that we were thinking about spaceships before we had planes? I think so. I don't know That's about nuts. flying flying machines. It was before the Wright brothers. We had wow. earlier planes, but we had the idea of a spaceship before. Sure. We had just regular like bullets air. getting shot into the moon's eye and stuff. Mm-hmm. What what I'm getting, though, is the vague sense that we've never made a spaceship. Just because our spaceships aren't quite cool enough. No, I don't think we've <laughs> ever made a spaceship. And the thing that is closest to it is, a, like, a crude spacecraft. So any spacecraft, which is, like, a thing that well, we send like into the space. the space shuttle. The shuttle got pretty close. Yeah, the shuttle. Yeah. And it or looks like a right. space station. There are people inside yeah. and it's floating uh-huh. around. It's not really being piloted, but it's moving in space and it has right. a lot of accoutrement. One of the things that, is, that our spacecraft don't have is the ability to like go somewhere at will. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like that's where the space shuttle kind of seems like a spaceship because it could go to the space station or it could go to Hubble or it could go various places in relatively low Earth orbit. That almost seems like a spaceship to me. Mm-hmm. And it can go back down and land on land. Which is cool. 
The space yeah. shuttle didn't just orbit. It could it could jet around. No, it just went up to the orbit that it wanted to go to, but it could uh, go to a variety of different orbits. Uh, okay, okay. Well, it's easier to define what our topic is when it doesn't quite exist yet. Uh, so, <laughs> like, the the topic is well covered, and now we're going to play a game, you guys. Are you ready for a game? Yes. Yeah. We're going to play that game called Scientific Definition. Do you remember that game? Ooh, uh-huh. so yeah. You say words, yeah. and we tell you what they mean as we best we guess. can. <laughs> so it's taken a lot of ingenious engineering and smart people to figure out how to create giant vehicles that can launch into space and do stuff. And it's also taken a lot of parts so today, we're going to play Scientific Definition Spaceships Edition. I'm going to give you the name of a spaceship part, and <laughs> it is up to you to guess what that part does. Whoever comes up with the closest to the actual definition wins a point. Are you ready to play? Yes. Mm-hmm. A, you're going to have to stretch your brain muscles to tell me <laughs> what is a yo-yo weight. Oh, man. I've played a lot of space team. But that has prepared me none to do, <laughs> I do love this. Space team. So these are things that are real? This is a real thing. A yo-yo weight is a real thing. I think a yo-yo weight probably has something to do with getting the satellite out of the back of the space shuttle. You know, when the thing opens sure, up sure. and the thing goes out of it. Yep. Somewhere in there is where it's happening with the yo-yo, the yo-yo weight. Yeah, some, some yo some kind of counterbalance for lifting a thing out of a thing. Exactly. Sounds good. Yeah, I don't know if you need a counterbalance in space, I guess. Sure you do. You do? Okay. There's mass up there. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do the opposite of that, but mm. maybe not opposite enough for you to clearly decide a winner. A yo-yo weight <laughs> is something that you'd... It's like a grappling hook in space where if you want to go somewhere, you kind of throw your yo-yo and then drag yourself along oh, behind it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so you throw out your yo-yo and then you drag yourself along the yo-yo? It's yeah. like a bladed yo-yo, a, mat- yeah, oh, you a gotta, magnetic yo-yo. I think you can hook the yo-yo onto things or I don't know how physics works mm, enough to yeah. really visualize it, but you were, you're using the yo-yo's weight to heft yourself around. Hmm. And when you say yourself, who who is oh, who shoot. is on the other end of the yo-yo? You must be close. Because you guys, you guys are both a little close. So oh, I have okay. to, I'm getting granular. I here. think it's um someone in who's doing extra ve- vehicular and EVA. So a, hum- a human, a human being, a human being. Yes, not a, okay. not an object. All right. Well, then it's going to Sam. Ah. Because no human being is involved in yo-yo weights. So it's a part of a mechanism. It's called a yo-yo D-spin that helps stop the spin of satellites and spacecraft after they launch. So when they launch, they might be launched with something called spin stabilization, which keeps them spinning around their axis. It reduces the effects of wind or drag or other variables that might apply torque to the spacecraft and get it off course. So this acts like a gyroscope and it works pretty well, but it also means that the spacecraft keeps spinning after launch. Uh, It does nothing to slow it down or stop it from spinning and that might mess instruments inside up so to slow the spin down the yo-yo d-spin is deployed the idea is sort of like the opposite of a figure skater who brings in their arms to keep spinning faster Mm. instead uh the yo-yo d-spin extends weights out on cords and then releases them increases increasing the moment of inertia and slowing the spin uh until it's really easy for it to slow it the rest of the way Mm. um and yes, that means that there are yo-yo weights just floating up there in space. Oh, they so let they, go of they them. Let, they let go. Yeah, so like <laughs> it goes out until it like slows down, and then it's like, pop, and then it stays oh. slow. We have no respect for our orbit at all. Just full yeah, of junk well, up there. It all falls back eventually. <laughs> 
it's, we, it's, there's a lot of space up there. I guess so. We have very little respect for our Earth, too. Have you That's seen true. someone finish a sandwich and just go <laughs> to the, <laughs> yeah. the piece of paper? So All right. Uh, so our second part on a spaceship that might uh, that is real, but you don't know what it does, is the rapid scat. <laughs> oh, God, I've heard of this one. Have you? Yeah. Rapid scat. Uh, I bet it's something to do with like a <sighs> detection. So on, it's it's a implement that's on the like tool control module of whatever a spacecraft <laughs> yeah, is. The, is that a thing? Yeah, I don't the know. TCM. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, if I use more fancy words, then it sounds more real. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's like. The less cool equivalent of the little green radar that goes bloop, bloop, bloop. If an asteroid's coming uh-huh. towards you, yeah. it just like rapidly scans around you and tells mm-hmm. you if there's anything of note. Uh, okay. Or hmm. like the general status of your, your system. I think it's some kind of little propulsion system that makes tiny adjustments to mm-hmm. push you around just a little bit. That one's going to Sari because it is, in yes. fact, a detection system, kind of, but does not do what you said it did. But <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a scatterometer, which mm-hmm. is apparently a thing, on board the International Space Station. It was launched in 2014. Uh, its job was, does not there anymore, to measure ocean winds, which uh, made it very important to a lot of agencies as a way to keep track of weather patterns and detect big storms. The Rapid Scat was actually created to replace NASA's QuickSat Earth satellite, which had stopped working in 2009. JPL needed to find a way to quickly and cheaply replace it, so they found a way to reuse hardware that had been used to test the QuickScat to assemble the Rapid Scat and send it to the ISS. The Rapid Scat ran for two years before it was decommissioned. Hmm. What happened to it? Just got tired. I think they. I think they found a. Uh, they launched a real replacement a for the quick stat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, yeah. they launched better scat. Uh, thanks for not <laughs> guessing a poop thing, you guys. The next one we have is a Whipple bumper. No. Oh. I'm not kidding. It's a real thing. The Whipple bumper. Whipple bumper. Oh. Can you can you use it in a sentence? Yeah. So they 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 they, they used the Whipple bumper. On the space station. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so when you're on stuff like that, there's got to be like some kind of arm or something that's going, moving around. And when you're spacewalking, if that hit, bumps into you, you're in trouble. That's mm-hmm. where the Whipple bumper comes in. <laughs> so you're the Whipple. Yeah. You, if you get bumped. The Whipple bumper protects you from getting bumped. I suppose it's some kind of skirt or some kind of... something with air inside of it to prevent Mm. damage to spacewalkers from being bumped from being bumped which is kind of the only thing that can happen to you in space really isn't it just bumped by various things in variously serious ways life is just a series of bumps that's kind of all that can happen to you period huh (laughs) yeah even here on earth we're just bumping yeah yeah into the floor (laughs) that's a great will smith song i'm bumping we're here on earth we're just we're just bumping (laughs) <laughs> um yes sorry um i think a whipple bumper is like when when one space station module and another space station module love each other very much <laughs> and then they're like yeah want to become a bigger space station and then they uh-huh. whipple bump together and they okay. like lock interlock and become one larger space station you're you got you guys got sharp brains today 
Uh, the Whipple bumper is neither of those things, but it does. It's closer to what Sam said. It's uh, a Whipple bumper, also known as a Whipple shield, is an aluminum shield around a spacecraft that breaks up approaching debris ah. to distribute its impacts and lessen the damage to the craft. It gets oh. its name from the inventor of it, Fred Whipple, oh, who fun. designed this shield in the 1940s. So it's like a, it's like the Enterprise has its like deflector, deflector shield, shield, but it's just some yeah. piece of metal. Yeah, it's, just, okay. it's a it's a particularly crafted layered aluminum thing that's really good at spreading out the um, the impact of impacts. Ah. All right, we got one last thing here. It's called Sherlock. Okay, so it doesn't have a it doesn't have a K on it, so you know it's an acronym. Yes, uh, they the love to name these things roughly after what they do. I feel like it is the super. Oh God! You're gonna do oh, the you're gonna actually yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> heavy, exciting, oh rock locator oh, or crusher. Oh. Uh, well, you could have just been locator, and it's like L O C. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Well, I got I said or crusher. It's documented, so now <laughs> my shame is public. So you think it both locates and crushes rocks? Yeah. Well, like hypothetically, I mean, you, yeah. They they like fist bump it and go, you crush that Sherlock. Um, There's at least a bump. Yeah. Because of how everything bumps. Yeah, there can't not be a bump. Yeah, they can't establish be a bump. that. Yeah. Um, and so what it does is it locates rocks. It's like oh, and then they say. Good job, Sherlock. Careful, you found cool careful. rock. That's like the same. Oh, it's not warning it about rocks. No, it's like detecting the. So let's say it's detecting <clears throat> the the rock rocky composition of asteroids or the yeah. moon. I don't know anything nearby. Rocky bodies nearby. That's almost exactly what I was gonna say. I was gonna say it was like a sample analyzer, but now I can't say that. So it is a. Uh, it's a health monitor of some sort mm. for mm. humans on yeah. something on it's a space station. station. Strap it on your belly and it tells you how you're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it says it says you're going to have to go soon. Yeah, you're eating too much goo. You got to get back to earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, um congratulations to both of you sam i don't know why you didn't go for it i would have tried to find some way in which your sherlock's were different but the sherlock indeed is a tool on the perseverance rover and it's tasked with searching for organic compounds minerals and other signs of past microbial life on mars and it does that with a whole bunch of cameras and spectrometers and a laser so it bumps with light at least uh which is another kind of bumping uh, and it does that with its co-investigator, Watson. Oh. So Sherlock stands for Scanning Habitable Environments with Raman and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals. And Watson stands for Wide Angle Topographic Sensor for Operations and Engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was going to say, I love how they can always make it work. But, eh. but they didn't really <laughs> they make did it work. work. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, great great work, Sari. Uh, and also Sam, but... You should have just committed. I should have fought for it. I I wanted to, you know. Sari needs a win. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you you came out of it exactly tied. So well done on that. Next up, we're going to take a short break, and then it'll be time for the fact off. I thought of some people I want on the show. Can I just interrupt real quick? <laughs> Ready yeah. after okay. the break. Hit me, hit me. I want Bill Oakley, the man who invented steamed hams from The Simpsons. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Is that a real person? Yeah. Like the steamed he ham a, he wrote He does like episode? a pretty popular TikTok reviews of food. So okay. you and him would have a lot to talk about. I mean, 
Alf is also not really a real person. So. <laughs> well, Bill Oakley is literally okay. a real person. Okay. I want uh, Joel from Mystery Science Theater. Okay, that's actually maybe doable. Yeah. I, I know people who know him. And I want John Hodgman. I think John Hodgman would be fun. Oh, I know people who know John Hodgman. I know John Hodgman. <laughs> I know someone who knows John Hodgman. It's you. <laughs> okay, now we can go to break. <laughs> Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow. If there's there's a constant drain on the the bean, that (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. a cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your unwanted <laughs> subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. I don't like it. <laughs> Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening. That all all that's building up around you. Oh, this is like terrifying. I'm so <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, factor ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. 
This is unacceptable. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door, ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> Oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. All right, everybody, it's time to get ready for the fact off. Our panelists have brought science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they have presented their facts, I'll judge them and award Hank Bucks to the one that I think will make the best TikTok. And to decide who goes first, I have a trivia question. One of the most important tasks of building the James Webb Space Telescope was figuring out how to actually get it into space. In the early 2000s, decades before the actual launch of the telescope, NASA settled on a launch vehicle, the Ariane 5, which belongs to the uh, European Space Agency. They picked the Ariane 5 because they considered it to be one of the world's most reliable launch vehicles and the only launch vehicle that met the Institute's requirements for transporting the telescope. Between 2003 and 2017, the Ariane 5 had a very impressive string of missions that launched consecutively without failure. How many missions did it launch in that time. Oh, I have no concept of how many missions humanity does <laughs> in any time. This is a good question. Um, um, I want to say less than one per year. That feels too expensive and fast. But it's all of Europe, Sari. I'm going to guess 10, a nice even 10. I'm going to guess okay. 25. 82. Oh, whoa. That's so we many. There space a lot, huh? Yeah. So a lot of uh, successes, but the mission that broke the streak of success was in uh, 2018, uh, and they figured out that uh, it happened because the rocket was given the wrong coordinates. Oh, no. So oh. it was not really the rocket's not fault. His fault. That Human. sent it 20 degrees off course and caused the rocket to lose contact with ground control, uh, and that was bad. Human error but doesn't it count. It worked so, so well that uh, the, the Jet AWST launch that uh, it saved the telescope a bunch of fuel, extending its operational time from 10 years to 20 years. So that's not bad. No. Yeah. Uh, as, long as, as long as it's fairly safe from those micrometeoroids, which are now my biggest fear. Oh, yeah, what happened? It got hit by one. It got hit by... A, so, like, they knew it was going to get hit by a little... Technically, micrometeoroid, because micrometeorites only happen when they hit the planet, I guess. Yeah. When they hit our atmosphere. Anyway... There's dust in space, and it's moving real fast, uh, The and they expected it to happen, but it got hit by a, one, a piece that was bigger than they expected, mm. which is concerning, because if it's going to get hit by pieces that big, like, basically, if it took six months before that thing hit it, if this happens every six months, it could 
over the course of the mission significantly degrade the ability of the telescope to get, you know, the same quality of science that we're getting right now, though it would still be better than anything that we have by a wide, wide margin. Shoot. So needs a Whipple bumper, huh? Well, you can't really put a Whipple bumper on your uh, giant beryllium gold-plated mm. mirror. Okay. Because it needs to see. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, exactly. If only we could have built a Star Trek-style uh, Whipple bumper made out of... Light or whatever it's made yeah. out of. I have no idea. Yeah, deflection feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, well, that means that... Sam gets to decide who goes first. I'm going to go first. I had an off week, so I'm just going to... I'm just going to get out of it. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. When humans launch things into space, we basically make a big old mess. From satellites to manned spacecrafts, launches leave different rocket stages in orbit, and even the craft and satellites themselves can become space junk eventually. And in Earth's orbit, this is getting to be an issue. According to NASA, there are about 23,000 bits of man-made space junk orbiting Earth, and each of those things is a potential hazard to other things that are launching into space. And to people, because something might squish them someday or something like that. There is, of course, another heavenly body that we sent people and other stuff to, the moon. And junk accumulates in its orbit, too. Right now, there's estimated to be a couple dozen bits of debris orbiting it. But the moon, he's just a little guy. And with several governmental and private entities interested in getting back to the moon in the near future, an estimated 50 missions in the next decade... The concern is that there's going to be just a big dangerous mess up there in pretty short order. And on top of that, the moon is so bright that it's long been considered impossible to track things that orbit it. Because you just look at it, it's a big orb of light. Impossible, that is, until 2020, when a scientist named Vishnu Reddy was observing China's Chang'e 5 lunar probe using a regular backyard telescope and discovered sort of accidentally that he could see a slight flicker at the edge of the moon as the probe orbited. Uh, and he figured out, because of these flickers, how to track it within 100 miles just from his own observations with his backyard telescope. Then he gathered more data and brought it to his colleague Roberto Ferfaro to develop an algorithm that could accurately forecast the orbit of the satellite. Uh, and this got the attention of the Air Force, who gave the team a $7.5 million grant to develop what will be, in essence, an air traffic control AI that can track all of the crap that's orbiting the moon and help map out safe routes so manned ships aren't getting hit by stuff so right now the team is like cataloging all the junk up there before they start writing the ai and that leads me to my real fact because this was all just a preamble the facility these researchers are working out of is none other than biosphere 2 uh the program is run, is run by the university of arizona which i guess owns biosphere 2 uh and a biosphere 2 apparently has an observatory or like a array of sensors called the space domain awareness observatory which i looked up and I, all i could find about it was this article basically um, so wacky old Biosphere 2 could become the space air traffic control tower of the future. And I think they should invite us there to look at it and do an episode of Tangents. So yeah. doctors for Faro and Ready, if you're listening, please, I want a podcast from Biosphere 2. <laughs> Gotta get in and play with our microphones. <laughs> yeah. That sounds a little humid, but very fun. I think it would mm -hmm. be great. We could sit in, oh we would gosh. sit in the desert room. We could sit in there and do it. We could know? sit in the, we could sit anywhere as long as I get to act out scenes from Biodome. <laughs> yeah, I'll watch it and we can do it together. Oh, my God. oh and then we could do a we could do a commentary for the oh for the movie. Patreon patrons. We could do a commentary for Biodome in Biosphere Two. That's the mm -hmm. best idea I've ever heard. It also it seems achievable. The biggest problem is getting Sari on a plane. I, 
I can go to Arizona, please, for this, right. for something this important. <laughs> I'm there okay. immediately. It's good to know. We'll it's replace her with John Hodgman for that episode. No! Me oh. and John Hodgman <laughs> in Biosphere 2 doing a commentary of Biodome. That's very weird. I would think that people would just know where their satellites are. They had to look. I don't think anybody cared to keep to keep tabs on them. So okay. it's just about it's like stuff left over from all of the missions right. that have landed and stuff like that. Yeah. I like that thing hit the moon recently and everybody was like, what the heck? What the heck? Because nobody's yeah. like, nobody's like keeping track of any of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is weird that we had like a big rocket booster fall on the moon and everyone was like, oh, yeah, yeah I guess that. I don't know. It was some it was some thing that was up there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> OK, Sari, what do you got? Like Sam mentioned in his poem, an important part of all kinds of sci-fi spaceships is an artificial is artificial gravity. So instead of floating around like astronauts in the ISS, our imagined fictional space travelers are walking around with their feet on the floor of the ship, also making film sets a lot more convenient for everybody. <laughs> but real-life engineers are also interested in artificial gravity to possibly combat some health effects from sticking human bodies in microgravity mm-hmm. environments over long periods of time, like say, a journey to Mars. So there have been a handful of hypotheses over time and one absolutely wild experiment on September 14th, 1966. Uh, It involved the Gemini 11 spacecraft, which had a crew of two, and the uncrewed Agena target vehicle, which was a modified rocket stage that had been used in a variety of experiments like practicing docking. The goal was to unravel a 100-foot tether between the Gemini 11 and the Agena, keeping it nice and taut. Then they mm-hmm. wanted to fire thrusters to spin the whole system, generating uh-huh. a center of gravity in the middle of the tether and a force that pushes outward, like those Gravitron fair rides. And theoretically, There's people in one of them? There's people in one of them. They were, mm. they were firing the thrusters. Uh, and the, theoretically, if the capsules spun fast enough, the astronauts would be able to walk along the edge as if it was the ground and experience some artificial gravity like in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> turns out that whipping two objects that weigh thousands of pounds each around in a circle while they're connected by rope is pretty chaotic. There were a couple hiccups during setup, like the tether getting stuck at 50 feet and then at 90 feet, and then the tether not pulling taut as nicely as they had hoped. And so then they were instructed to fire the thrusters a little to pick up the slack. But then the tether started whipping around like a jump rope between the Agena and the Gemini 11 capsule, Uh, which was definitely uh really fun, not scary at all. Even with that terrifying sight, they kept firing the thrusters and straightened out the tether until they got a comfortable 38 degree per minute rotation going through the night. And because scientists can be both smart and dumb, the folks on the ground (laughs) then asked the Gemini crew to spin faster. They were like, you got it stable. Now hit the gas again. Let's go. Um, And that tightened the tether and started slingshotting the astronauts around, at which point one of them yelled, Oh, look at the slack. It's going to jerk this thing to heck. Oh, no. I'm glad he didn't swear. Yeah. (laughs) And somehow, those weren't his last words, and the astronauts stabilized the whole system to a speedy 55-degree-per-minute rotation, which doesn't seem worth the trouble, uh, which generated a whopping 0.00015G of artificial gravity. Oh. So very so, small. So like you basically 
if 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 you put if you put something on the ground, it it might not come back up. Yep, and that's exactly <laughs> basically what they did, which was they couldn't feel it, but they placed a camera against the instrument panel of Gemini Eleven and let go, and then it moved parallel to the direction of the tether and hit the back wall, and they were like, well. That's artificial gravity, I guess. <laughs> uh, That's the last time we're going to try that. Yeah. And then they released the tether and got a safe distance from the Gina capsule. Hooray? Question mark. Uh-huh. Um, and there are a lot of hypothetical problems with spinning spaceships and practical ones, if you count the chaos of this mission. And I don't think we've tried anything since. But I'm sure it. it is... Just one of plenty of other wild ideas brewing when it comes to artificial gravity that we'll experience someday, maybe. The the idea that you do that with a craft that had people in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you could do that without people in it. <laughs> yeah, it's not I like you have like, to have people who are like, oh, I'm feeling maybe gravity Maybe in now. 1969 it was a lot easier to do with people in it because you had to have somebody to push buttons, literally, because yeah. a computer uh, could only ad i don't know like because like, it because it was because it was significantly less advanced than your f- phone uh is of course yeah but like so now i feel like we should try that out like we have a lot more control over things now than we did then but still i wouldn't want to be on one end of the, that tether because if anything goes wrong what what did he say it's kind of it's going to jerk this thing to heck yeah. You don't want that. I to feel happen. like it's gonna jerk that thing to heck. And when that happens, you just shoot off you just shoot off once that it gets jerked to heck. If you're lucky enough to keep your vacuum seal, you just get flung off in whatever direction flung you happen off, to yeah. be going in when you when it broke. Couldn't they have Which, done it tiny I don't know with wh- like an ant or something also? Couldn't they have put yeah. like an ant in a ping pong ball and been like, all right, think spin it around? Yeah. Inside the thing, just like like a a hamster wheel. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's amazing that it all went as the early space missions went as well as they did. All right, so now I have to choose between these two things. I got two excellent facts. I've got air traffic control for the moon from Biosphere Two, which could uh, could be a a great place to record an episode of Tangents, or Sari, uh, a really ridiculously dangerous, but ultimately. Uh, I guess successful artificial gravity <laughs> experiment during Gemini. Ah, oh, gosh. I'm going to go with Sari. Well, it's just a slightly better story because the people were almost killed. Well, okay. I it's... feel like you have a bias, but that's okay. <laughs> what do I have a bias I'm gonna, towards? I'm gonna... What's my bias? Towards Sari. Towards Sari bias. Yeah. Not toward, like, space or toward... Toward death, weird historical missions. No, just yeah. toward Sari specifically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm okay uh-huh. being... You're fan favorite. I can be pod favorite. Hank's favorite? Yeah, Hank's favorite. <laughs> I'll be Hank's favorite podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> and that means it's time to ask the science couch. We've got uh, one from Muhammad ML Eng who asks... How does a gyroscope help compensate for the rotation of tape reels, tools, etc.? It's just a spinning top, right? It's just a spinning top, right? All I know mm-hmm. is if you're holding a fidget spinner and you move it, <laughs> you can feel the force yeah. of this of the spin, whatever this force is. And and so a gyroscope wants to stay 
in one position. And if you push on it, then it will push back. And you can use that push back to change the orientation of stuff in space. Am I right? Yeah, that's the bet. I It took me probably an hour of research to get to that point where I could explain it that simply. I was like, I got to digest all this physics. I got to make sure. Watch these videos. In uncomprehensible. I'm going to say it good. And then you just said it good. That's why I picked this question. Remember I said Hank's going to know the answer. I know, but I was like, I was prepared to, yeah. to not embarrass myself. But. Well, I can tell you, I don't really understand the physics of it. Like, like I, I, it is only because of fidget spinners that I have any intuitive <laughs> understanding of how a gyroscope works. Well, Without okay. that, I wouldn't. Like, it's real weird mm-hmm. that uh, that that momentum creates um, a, a force. Because I mean, I guess it's because like it's spinning away, and it has inertia in that direction. And when you change the direction, you are changing the inertia. You're pushing against the. You, you are forcing it to go against where its inertia wants to go. Um, and I've also seen astronauts in space do stuff with gyroscopes where they're like, they put it there and instead of like doing what anything else would do, which is just like float around, it's just like, Ain't. yeah. Oh, weird. I, I think in answer to the, the end part of this question, which is it's just a spinning top, right? So the gyroscopes you see are not just a top. A spinning top is either governed by or has a gyroscopic effect on it, which is that once it's spinning fast enough, it wants to remain spinning around that axis, like I think was saying. But a gyroscope, like the ones that you see in the space videos or the ones that are little desk toys, are a spinning wheel that are mounted onto those rings around it Mm -hmm, called mm -hmm. gimbals so that as forces are exerted upon it to uh, like switch how the the gyroscope would be spinning it remains around the same axis and instead the gimbals spin around it like it exerts a counter force onto the gimbals and then those move around it and so that is how the gyroscope like the flat surface of the gyroscope remains spinning on the same plane and it can be readjusted Mm -hmm. by like a human poking it but as space is moving around it it will stay moving and the gimbals are going to be the things that switch because the the spin like that angular momentum is what is maintaining the the orientation of it and this is something we're using a lot in space oh yes yeah so we use it in a lot of different technologies um it's they're they're called collectively inertial navigation systems Mm. and they use a combination of gyroscopes and accelerometers to get information about which way a thing is pointing and how fast it's moving in that direction to make little corrections. And and it's how like uh so if a satellite wants to change orientation in space, it doesn't have to use reaction mass, it doesn't have to like throw stuff out to oh. uh to change the its orientation, it can use the gyroscopes to actually alter the way it's pointing it can't like move in a direction but it can move it can change the the direction it's facing whoa i never even I thought about how they would do mm. that thanks to everybody for your hard work we <laughs> are podcast hosts <laughs> and i just like to see him try to do our job though come on <laughs> that's right 
Well, if you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents. We tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week and then and look for questions. Or you can join the SciShow Tangents Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thank you to at Mucolepticon napoleon on discord and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode if you like this show and you want to help us out super easy to do that first you can go to patreon.com slash scishow tangents to become a patron and get access to things like our newsletter our bonus episodes and second you can leave us a review wherever you listen that's very helpful and helps us know what you like about the show and finally if you want to show your love for scishow tangents just tell people about us Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz. Our editor is Seth Glixman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Julia Buzz Bezio. Our editorial assistant is Devoki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Hank Green. And of course, we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. The first U.S. spaceflight program was Project Mercury, so NASA was figuring out a lot of stuff from scratch. And of course, one concern was keeping astronauts as comfy as possible while they experienced the extreme 3G or so force during launch. So some of the astronauts that were selected for Project Mercury over the years had a personalized butt mold Mm. made so engineers could design spaceship seats that would perfectly cradle their butts. Uh, that's nice. Why didn't all of them, though? Some of them just don't care about their butts. They were like, turns out it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> <laughs> just stick a big pillow down there and it'll be uncomfortable yeah. no matter what you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, get, the, get a memory foam pillow. <laughs> <laughs>